You're talking about putting your fuck parts in my head where my brain lives. You know, in nature, only a handful of creatures mate for life. But isn't that, like, cheating? We can't do this 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Why not? The safety word is banana. It is so refreshing to be with someone who likes to fuck outside the box. This is the Touch of Flavor podcast. Dating and relationship advice by kinksters for kinksters. Join us as we tackle BDSM, sex, non-monogamy, and how to build extraordinary relationships in an ordinary world. And now your hosts, Cassie and Rigel. So today we're talking to Alan M. Uh, Alan's been a poly activist for 13 years and is best known for his website, Polyamory in the News. It's tracked about 3,000 articles, broadcasts, and other items appearing in the media since 2005. A science editor in his day job, he edited the polyamory books More Than Two, The Game Changer, Polyamory in Pregnancy, and Playing Fair. Alan was a co-founder of the Polyamory Leadership Network in 2008 and is currently helping organize the upcoming Polyamory Coalition of Conferences, Nonprofits, local groups, podcasts, and other projects to build a coalition group that can do bigger things than we've been able to do so far. Alan, we're happy to have you on the show. Glad to be here. Yeah, so it's it's actually uh, I've I've been following. Uh, so I, I we we actually had a little bit of a discussion about this off uh, off air, I suppose, before we started about the name. Um, so it's polyamory in the news, but a lot of other people, including myself, might know it as polyamory in the media, which is your blog spot. URL, correct? Search on either one of them will uh, land on it. Yes. Yeah. So I've, I've actually been following your stuff for uh, for a few years. So when a, a acquaintance from a previous show had had suggested making connection, I was uh, super happy to talk to you because I know you've been you know doing activist work and following this stuff for a long time. So. Well, it's been fun. Uh, this is uh, really one of the most interesting things that I think I've done uh, projects that I've done in my life. Can you just, I guess, start with telling people kind of what Polly and I'm not going to call it Polly in the media because I'm going to get confused trying to call it Polly in the news. Um, but what Polly in the media is, and uh, you know, kind of how it got started. Like, what the what what is the origin story, so to speak? Oh my gosh! Well, this goes back, I guess, to my origin story. Uh, okay, ages ago, before the word was invented, when I was 17, uh, I was turned on to Robert Heinlein's science fiction novel *Stranger in a Strange Land* by a girlfriend uh, who was a group in a group of uh, what would now be considered poly folks. And well, they invited me in, and well, I never looked back. And that was many years ago. Um, but after not finding the the commune, the poly families, the community that I hoped for uh, in the 70s and by about the mid-80s, I'd more or less given up. And then uh, around 2005, I discovered that this movement had taken off in my absence and was actually uh, accomplishing a lot and seemed a lot more mature and uh, better organized than it had been. So I thought, hey, I got to dive back into this. And so I looked around learned what the groups were, learned who was who and what was what, and looking for some niche that I could fill, something that I could usefully do for the movement and the community. And there had been people who had started 
websites uh, collecting news articles where polyamory got into uh, mainstream media, which was very unusual back at that time. Uh, but they let the websites drop and they were incomplete. I thought, I can do this better. Uh, so that's how I got started. And I've been running with it ever since. So what uh, can you just go a little further into what exactly Poly in the Media does? Like, what does it track? How do you come across information? What do you, you know, what do you post? All that kind of stuff for people who may not be familiar. Well, I've got a new Google News alert out for various keywords and people send me stuff and I look on blogs and I uh, look at what's going on on, the, on poly sites on Facebook. Uh, so if the Dubuque Journal interviews their local organizer of the poly meetup, um, I'm liable to find out about it. Uh, and um, I'm no longer really able to cover all little, all of the little mentions that show up all over the place, little things like that, because there's just so many of them now. But I used to be able to do a pretty complete job. So now I'm doing more things that just catch my fancy or that are really big time media like the New York Times, Washington Post, ABC, um, Nightline, things like this, as well as uh, stuff, some stuff from overseas. Okay, so I, we want to talk a little bit about kind of the the view of poly in the mainstream media, how that's changed over the years. But something else you brought up that I think might just be interesting to talk about for a minute is how much the poly world itself has changed over the last several years. Would uh would I be able to ask you like when you had first started exploring polyamory and looking for a community and that kind of stuff? In those days, I would say the the concepts. The idea was a good deal more utopian. People were looking for something that was really going to revolutionize society and remake the world. Uh, and I still believe that, that, that uh, the poly movement and relationship choice in general is going to help humanize the world. And I think the gay movement has led the way on this. Uh, back in the day, um, people didn't have very much real-life practical experience. And by oh, the end of the 1990s, they did. Loving More magazine existed as a print magazine back in those days. That was uh, a nexus that brought a lot of people together to share experiences and ideas. The first few books started coming out, and um, Loving More started organizing uh, conferences, uh, conventions that were fairly well attended. Um, so by then, well, the movement just had be, gained a great deal more maturity and, and uh, realism and capability. I love, I love that you refer to it as a movement. I don't think I hear a lot of people refer to polyamory as a movement. I do that deliberately. Because I think it is, even if it's, I mean, not like the Women's March is a movement, not like other things are uh, explicitly a movement. It is, this is, has been driven for at least the last 20 years by people who really believe in the concept behind this and that it ought to be better known and the, the world should be made aware of this and the poly community should uh, be more made aware of uh, how large it is and who else is in there and what best practices have been determined uh, by lots of people's experiences and uh, that makes a movement in my book. One of the, the things that I've found really interesting, you know, when you talk about the poly community knowing how big it is, is that the more, 
I guess the more we reach out and like the wider kind of our net becomes with this show and, and, you know, all of the other stuff that, that we do where we interact with people, um, it really is amazing the, the number of people who are poly and most now, you know, in this day and age, even know the word poly or polyamory, but don't have like any interaction with their community. Like either they're, they're not aware of it um, or, you know, for various reasons they've chosen not to be. Or they think they don't need it. And I think that is, uh, is a mistake. You need community. You need people around you who understand you and understand what you're doing and can provide support when you need it and advice when you need it. Um, it's If there's one thing that I would say that you predict success when somebody goes into this or when a, an established couple goes into this, it is the presence of supporting community that they are part of. People who do this on their own tend to screw up or and, uh, and crash and burn at a higher rate. Yeah, I've I've heard it said, and I uh, I haven't been involved in the poly community long enough to see this. We've we've maybe been about ten years ish, but I've I've heard from people who have been around much longer that you actually see the the prevalence of uh, well the ratio, let's say, of successful relationships higher now, primarily because before when you know there was no community, there was no education, there were no resources everybody was kind of learning by trial and error and uh, and that you know you actually see there's there's a higher ratio of relationships now that are successful because there's the resources yeah it's so much easier to learn from other people's mistakes rather than your own especially when there's large numbers of those mistakes made in a consistent way and there are books written about these this particular pitfall that has swallowed large numbers of people and here's a fence to put around that pitfall so you don't fall in yeah well something we always like to say too is that if you are going to learn by trial and error your relationships aren't a great place to do that either <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, that's one place that you don't want to try the good old try and, and, and trial and error method is your relationships. Yes, relationships. People are not expendable. Um, yeah, um, it's one thing to do experiments on mice, but uh, it's a whole different thing to do experiments with people who, and their hearts. That's winding up in a quote. <laughs> That's, uh, and that see, was that was amazing yeah and see meanwhile i'm over here like touch of flavor does not you know support the, <laughs> the experimentation non, on non-ethical experimentation on, on mice <laughs> on humans yes well in the, the book more than two by eve rickert and franklin Vaux, which is at this point uh, really i think the the leading poly guidebook one of their essential principles uh the ethical basis of the whole book and its philosophy um, is, well, as Granny Weatherwax said in the Terry Pratchett books, sin, young man, is when you treat people like things. Don't treat people like things. With that rule, much of uh, the rest of ethics and morality falls into place. You know, I have, I have parts of more than two I agree with and parts I agree with less, but one of the to kind of along the lines of what you're saying, and if, I, if I'm remembering how it's phrased at a certain point in the book, is you always have to remember that the people in the relationships are more important than the relationships. 
that's another one of their uh, key principles. It's not that, oh, I want to live in a triad or we want to live in a triad and we've got to have a triad. And so if you're coming in, you have to live in exactly the structure that we want. No, this is not about building a relationship that has a hole in it and finding a person to fill the hole. And this is a very common mistake that a lot of new people make these days. It's about making room in your life for the people who are in your life. Another predictor of poly success is if people were already friends before they became romantic and intimate. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think that's, uh, and you know, that's not just a poly. I don't think that's just poly relationship success. It is general relationship success. I mean, it's it's a lot easier when you, well, first off, it's easy to make mistakes when you're rushing to get to know somebody. We've we've been there, done that ourselves. But also, you know, when you already have that basis of trust and friendship and similar interests, and you you know you really know the person, um, yeah. That I mean, that's always beneficial to building good relationships, poly or non. You know, something else that I thought was interesting that you had a. Uh, that you had mentioned is when you when you talk about it as a movement. I'm just curious about the uh, the response that you must get to that from the like, oh, you're trying to convert all the monogamous people to polyamory uh, shtick. No, I actually don't. Uh, I don't hear much of that at all. Uh, I think we've been very good about making relationship choice the buzzword. Uh, it's in the. Uh, the motto of loving more. It's in the the uh, the motto of the statement of purpose of the poly leadership move, poly leadership network. Relationship choice means people get to choose the kind of relationship structures that work for them. And there's certainly a thing uh, called intentional monogamy. That is when you know you do not have to be monogamous the way you were brought up. You actually can make working relationships uh, uh, in another form, but you decide that monogamy is for you. That's an example of relationship choice. If you know what's available uh, and make a choice rather than just blunder into what everybody is supposed to do and are supposed to take uh, as assumed without uh, without any, uh, any thought. So I, anyway, have been... Uh, kind of militant about um, making sure that people understand that, yes, this is about uh, people choosing monogamy as well, if that's what they want. That is one choice. It's not the only choice. Yeah. So a while back, our, our son actually came out to us as being straight and monogamous and it was almost it was an amusing conversation. Yeah, like he came up and he was like, you know, I, mom, I've I've got something I got to tell you, and it's serious. And I'm thinking, oh, oh heavens, like something went through my windshield, or you know, he's he's done broke something in the house. And I'm like, what, buddy? What's going on? And he's like, well, I want you to know that I'm straight and monogamous. And I was like, okay, cool, <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> what's what's the big deal? Yes. Okay, and what. I really liked about that was that it was a choice. Like it wasn't this idea of I have to be, you know, if I need to come out, it's I need to come out as as bisexual or straight, um, or if I need to come out, it's it's about coming out as either monogamous or non-monogamous. Like it's it's not one is the predominant thing and the only choice. It's it's look, this is this is what I am, and I choose this even with 
knowing the other options and having that informed choice and those things presented as viable options, regardless of if those are the options that work for you and you want. Yeah, I remember, oh, at a Loving More conference, I think about eight or nine years ago, Diana Adams, who is now a uh, lawyer in uh, New York City and Frankfurt, Germany, specializing in alternative family law, poly families and GLBT families in particular, she got up and declared that uh, she had a goal and a mission that within five years, every college student in America would know the word polyamory. Hmm. And that, I remember thinking, okay, yeah, 50 years maybe, but damn it, it happened. (laughs) Uh, Not every college student, but pretty much uh, large fractions of the public so that the media no longer have to define the word. They just seem to assume more often that the readers or listeners uh, understand what they're talking about. And furthermore, when they do define it, they get it right. Basically, ethical, transparent non-monogamy done with uh, the full knowledge and uh, assent of everybody involved. Yeah, it's it's interesting to me how fast that word has proliferated. I um, I mean, the media aside, just even our experience recently with talking to people, um, you know, who we've never interacted with before, and and those people who, like I said, who aren't involved in their community, who are not monogamous, like we, something that's kind of surprised us over the last little bit is just how these people's conversations with us, you know, when they write into our, like, ask questions for our podcast or they're they're talking to us on Facebook or whatever. It's been just interesting to us how just over the last little bit that language has changed where pretty much all these people are using the word polyamory. That's actually shocked me quite a bit. And I mean, these are people with really no background who are familiar with the word now. Yeah. And uh, I think we've got uh, the media in large uh, as being our enablers and being able to get that message out. I remember when Robin Trask took over Loving More in, I think it was 2004, um, up to then, people had been saying, oh, no, we got to keep this uh, secret and private. The media will just make fun of us uh, uh, and or we'll, we're going to have we'll have a terrible backlash if we become publicly known. We got to keep this secret. And she said, no, I want this. I want to get uh, try something different and found out pretty rapidly uh, that uh, newspaper reporters and radio interviewers uh, are actually, um, well, surprisingly, uh, if not supportive, at least uh, open-minded and positive about this thing. And um, oh, so a few years, some years ago, uh, Pepper Mint, an activist out in the San Francisco Bay Area, uh, very active in the BDSM community there, is, uh, wrote a, uh, an essay called The Strange Credibility of Polyamory. Uh, compared to other alternative sexuality and relationship things, BDSM in particular, various fetishes, GLBT even, uh, as it was a little bit early, uh, had to go through an awful lot of uh, uh, nasty stuff of how they were portrayed to the wider world. And the poly folks seemed to be treated as if we were all sweetness and light, and we talk earnestly about integrity and honesty and relationships and good communication and uh, and things like this. Um, uh, 
Uh, so I've been waiting for a, uh, a backlash to uh, arise, and it hasn't. And I think it's too late. I think we're too well, <laughs> our, our ideas are too well established out in the uh, wider world now for a, a moral panic to get hold. Uh, we don't find the... Um, uh, the Russian uh, bot farms uh, spreading Facebook posts that um, the, the, uh, uh, a Democratic congressman is known to be polyamorous and went to a polyamory uh, meetup group where they slaughtered a baby and ate it uh, and spread this around on your Facebook group because this is what the, this is. We're not seeing this. It just isn't happening. The right wing tried to gin up um, a, a moral panic back in the early to mid 2000s uh, with the uh, the idea of uh, that polygamous marriage was right around the corner and there was a big movement to make it happen. And the, the purpose of this was to undermine and overthrow the very concept of marriage altogether. And this was on the the cover of the National Review, the Weekly Standard, the, the big, the big time major conservative journals, and it went nowhere. It just didn't get any traction beyond uh, the uh, the core constituency of the conservative movement itself. So they just dropped it, and they've never really tried ever uh, to do that again. Um, now the uh, polygamous marriage was. The uh, always held out as the terrible thing that was at the bottom of the slippery slope uh, if gay marriage is allowed. And I mean, you know, so we were the thing and we were the swamp creature at the bottom of the slippery slide uh, that gay marriage was going to uh, slide the country into. But we were used as a foil in the argument against gay marriage. And then when gay marriage became national, basically they threw in the towel and forgot about us. <laughs> well, I think that's because it was, you know, a lot of that really was, uh, I think I think a lot of that panic or the, the attempt to create that panic at that, that moment in history really wasn't so much about us as it was about the LGBT movement and about gay marriage. In fact, hasn't been much uh, demand for multiple marriage uh, from the poly movement. Most of this is coming from uh, fundamentalist Mormons and uh, very different, uh, very different places than uh, than we are at. In fact, most people say that, uh, in fact. Uh, the privileges of marriage uh, should be broadened to cover single people as well. You shouldn't have to get married to get health insurance if you're uh, not in a place where you've, you've already got good health insurance. Uh, you shouldn't have to be uh, get married for various other benefits that people uh, that people get. Um, so, uh, and those who do. Uh, want to have formal marriage ceremonies. They, there are quite a few people who do poly wedding ceremonies or hand fasting ceremonies with a proviso that this is, is understood. This is not a, uh, a legal thing. and We're not holding ourselves out as legally married because that would be fraud because we don't have a marriage license. But uh, before God, before our community, before each other, we're, we're just as good as married. And that's just that's fine for a lot of people. Yeah, it's interesting. I am. We actually find ourselves somewhat in that that situation ourselves. Cassie and I are married, and you know, I'm I'm kind of. It's interesting. The the older I get, the uh, more I'm I'm kind of coming in line with the. So so Cassie Cassie has a a, a close relative who is re both religious and a lawyer, <laughs> and um, yes, we've we've had a quite quite tolerant, great guy. We've had some conversations with him before, and his his opinion on the whole thing, which is actually becoming mine. The, the further that I go on 
is that, you know, these kinds of the, the protections that are afforded by marriage and the responsibilities as well, you know, these are things that these should be done by contract. I mean, and you know, in his in, in his opinion, this should be something where both parties have a lawyer, and you come up with contracts, and and you should be able to you know assign these rights and responsibilities and determine uh you know like exactly what's happening with who, and that should be independent of the number of partners or marriage or anything along those lines. And the marriage ceremony is like any other holiday or any other event that you plan, and is for the emotional aspect, but the legal aspect is handled as a legal aspect. Yeah. Well, the reason that the uh, the vast body of marriage law exists as it does now, and you can buy into that with one simple contract, which is a, uh, a marriage certificate, is because when people don't have the time or the resources or the knowledge to put together their own legal contract and pay thousands of dollars to a lawyer for it, then these things are already covered by default. Uh, and in some cases, to prevent uh, exploitation, I think for very good reasons within, in a marriage, in some cases, the marriage contract overrides uh, um, arrangements, legal arrangements that uh, people, that a married couple might make uh, that would be um, uh, exploitive or contrary to, uh, to law. So there's, there's actually uh, good grounds for, for seeing a lot of value in the body of marriage law that has built up. Uh, but another aspect, and this brings up another aspect, gay marriage mapped very precisely onto the massive existing body of marriage law that already exists for two people. The only thing that had to be changed is the form had to be able to say spouse and spouse instead of husband and wife. Other than that, ever since wives uh, started being treated as legal equals in marriage in uh, the, I guess it was about the mid to late 60s as I remember it, uh, then uh, gay marriage maps right onto that when the husband doesn't automatically have rights that the wife doesn't. In fact, I remember back then when uh, there was controversy, you're going to let the wife be the equal to the husband under the law in marriage? Why, this is going to upend society. Why? And I remember my late beloved grandfather, who had his opinions, uh, saying, uh, my gosh, the next thing you know, a man will be able to marry his mule. Ha ha. As if that settled the argument. And well, society uh, gets better over time in some ways. It's interesting, you know, that you're saying that because I think, you know, when you're talking about stuff mapping onto marriage law, so just, you know, our situation, we, we have, we have, we have uh, multiple partners. We have, you know, kind of a primary relationship. We have a partner who lives with us and we're actually planning a ceremony and, you know, we're in that situation of having to, uh, you know, talk to lawyers and deal with the expenses of, of making sure that everybody is protected legally. And I think that most people who are kind of seeing a way forward for those kind of relationships and those kinds of like intentional agreements. I don't think most people see it coming from, uh, uh, from, you know, allowing multiple people to marry. I think most people see it as kind of changing how marriage is viewed, like is marriage a ceremony and, and, and is the, the rest of it handled legally. And the really interesting thing about that is that uh, in, in this aspect, some of the steps that or proposed steps that conservatives have taken in the wake of gay marriage are actually kind of steps in that direction. Yes, that um, 
if you want to be married according to the principles of your church, you can have a church marriage that counts as a, a church marriage in your church, and that will be uh, separate from the, the document you get at City Hall. Right. And there's been some pushes for that. And you're, you're probably more familiar with this than me, but there's actually been some pushes from conservative ends in certain, like certain highly conservative areas to kind of, I feel like there's one state in particular where this was an issue for, you know, in the, in the headlines for a little bit, where they were actually having like serious discussions about basically separating out the marriage certificate from the ceremony legally and from the whole concept of, of, oh, I'm gonna have to look this up now. Well, I don't know if you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, the religious argument about uh, what gay marriage would do to, quote, pollute marriage is viewing marriage as a, uh, a religious sacrament, that is, a ceremony between you and God. Uh, and that is a religious thing that, uh, that people can do in churches, but that is not what you do in city hall. Uh, the separation of church and state is pretty clear on that. And this is a case where they've decided that, uh, or some uh, conservative states, I think Alabama, this has gone fairly far, uh, have decided that uh, to try to uh, divorce uh, the uh, the covenant with God from the contract, uh, the legal contract with each other. Which would be a great step in our direction as far as I'm concerned. So yeah. didn't think I'd see, uh, say, uh, you know, good for what seems to be happening in Alabama, but that, you know, <laughs> may... Uh, well, so what, one thing that we do, you know, we, we could, I think we could probably talk about a variety of topics for, for a long period of time. But one thing I do want to make sure that we talk about, because it is kind of your, your area of expertise in a way, is you've had really kind of a frontline view over the years of how polyamory and, and you know, non-monogamous relationships have been perceived in the media and presented to the public over the years and how that has changed. And we'd really like to, you know, discuss that a little bit with you, kind of like, you know, where stuff is at to where it's come. Well, before there was a turning point in 19, uh, in 2006, I think it was, when newspapers started accepting that they could use this word. Before that, we'd hear things like, uh, it's, it sounds complicated, it's, it, people don't know what the word is, and it's not in the dictionary. And when it got into the dictionaries uh, in 2006, all of a sudden that argument disappeared, and apparently copy editors at newspapers said, okay, we'll let this through now. Uh, so that was a big help. It gave people a word to Google. Uh, and since then, it's just been a matter of uh, greater public recognition and understanding right along ever since. What I find especially interesting is how the demography, the character of the poly community in, at large has changed as it has grown and spread. Back in the early 2000s, uh, people who knew about polyamory, the image that came to mind was aging hippies. And there was a certain amount of truth to that if you went to a Loving More conference. Uh, the current young generation has come right in and taken over so many things to the extent, to the, the point that a lot of people just take relationship choice for granted. This is just the way they live, the way the, the environment, the upcoming generation has, uh, has been brought up in, at least if they're in a reasonably liberal cosmopolitan part of the country. Also, the radical 
outsider character of uh, a lot of the people who found their way into a small radical outsider social movement at that time has moderated or I, I, has, I don't like to say been diluted by, but there are an awful lot more mainstream people coming in. And this is, has uh, had some interesting effects. For one thing, when you come into this piece of alternative culture from uh, alternative culture, it's, it, uh, you slide into it a lot easier. If you come from mainstream culture with all of the mainstream baggage that people have that they don't uh, realize they're carrying uh, and try to do something radical and alternative out of context, things can go bad. This is something that uh, Franklin, in his book, More Than Two, that book really came out just at the right time in 2014 because he really made a point of drilling into people the flaws of the the standard model of how people were getting into it at that time, which is a couple going out and looking for a third. And the third is going to be disposable if things don't work out between the couple, or maybe if things do work out between the couple and their problems go away and they're happy together and, okay, we're done with you, you can go now. Treating people as things rather than as people, carrying along many of the assumptions that you own your partner, you control your partner, that's, that's a very non-starter in the poly world, which is, oh, as Barry Smiler uh, has said, is really just a continuation of the 500-year trend in Western society of your life being determined more and more by you, the individual, and less by the people around you. This is just another uh, small step in that centuries-long trend that has basically been, the, the, I would say, the basis of Western uh, civilization. Uh, never mind. We, won't want to, we don't want to go into there uh, and get into <laughs> all of the evils that Western civilization has done. No, I'm not going there. But if you don't stop and rethink a lot of the life that you take for granted and think this is just something you can just graft on, like swinging, and keep it at parties, and it won't really matter to the rest of your life, uh, that's a fallacy. And that's you. we see this more happening, I think, with more mainstream com people coming in rather than people who are already, in one sense or another, alienated or outside mainstream culture and having to think for themselves uh, in ways that, um, that, uh, that many people don't. One thing I do, I do just want to point out before we go on in that, that whole thing about Franklin is I will say that one, one place that I do tend to disagree with Franklin is his somewhat, somewhat dim view he takes, or at least seems to take in a lot of his writing of group poly or group dynamics. I completely agree that, you know, plenty of people coming in, especially people who are new to poly and people who are new to poly do tend to do this thing where they they go unicorn hunting is for lack of a better word you know they go out looking for their third and they treat people like things instead of people and really bad things tend to come from that but i do feel in in his writings like he takes kind of a dim view of like group or community oriented poly and people who are in like group relationships so i did just want to touch well, that for okay. a minute uh I didn't really get that feeling so much, but maybe I was uh, overlooking it. I'm not saying you're uh, you're wrong, uh, and of course that's been my my ideal form of poly. Uh, 
pretty much for all of my life, but it's mighty hard. It's, it's hard to find one close mate and partner that you really, really click with and two or three or four all at once and have the dynamics between the whole bunch of them working out. That's, uh, that's pretty special. And doesn't happen as often as uh, people would really like it to. It's wonderful when it does. And I, I don't want to speak for Franklin. I haven't had this discussion with him. I think a lot of people take some of the stuff that way. And I just wanted to make that clear to people who are listening that, you know, there isn't a wrong structure, but it is hard to find. It is definitely hard to do. Okay, good point. While we're on the subject of books, that book is nearly 500 pages. If you want the smaller version, what I recommend to people is... Uh, Cunning Minx's book, Eight Things I Wish I'd Known About Polyamory Before I Tried It and Fracked It Up. It's 88 pages. Uh, the print is bigger, and it covers basically everything, all of the basics very well. She's a smart, snappy writer, no wasted words. If you want the short version, that's the one that I'd recommend. That's awesome. I mean, at this point, there are uh, at least uh, 50 polyamory books that are out there. Uh, at this point. And I remember when it was two or three. <laughs> so that's a, definitely a big change. Something I have, I'm interested in is, did the poly community have like its Fifty Shades of Grey moment? Like we, we come from the kink community and- well, We kind of came to poly by way of kink, which yeah. is I think uh, what yeah. you were talking about. We, we, we came in to kink first and then found our poly community pretty quickly afterwards. But there was the Fifty Shades of Grey moment, which was like when right. really kink launched mainstream. into the very, very mainstream. It became um, a household word. And I was wondering if, if Polly did that or if it took a, a, a different course. No, that, there hasn't been a, uh, a moment like that. The closest thing might be the... Uh, the polyamory uh, married and dating series, reality series that was on Showtime in uh, 2012 and 2013. I saw this create a, a great big bump uh, in my um, uh, the hits on my website. Uh, it got quite a bit of attention in the press. I, that may have been a, a something of a turning point, but not a very big one. I mean, it was just a reality show on cable. So, no, we're waiting for that. I was hoping that last year's Professor Marston and the Wonder Women, oh, Uzi, uh, <laughs> the, uh, the early proto-poly family that was uh, behind the creation of Wonder Woman in the 1930s and 40s when the comic really started coming out, that got into mainstream theaters. It opened in 2000 theaters. And it, it was a small independent film by Annapurna Films. And uh, it didn't catch hold. It kind of bombed at uh, going and trying to do that big of a box office thing. So I had, I had hopes that that was going to be a moment and didn't really turn out to be. It got a lot of attention among newspaper reviewers. But, uh, well, when uh, my wife and I went to, to see it, uh, uh, a uh, day or so after it opened, uh, there were about three people in the theater. So I was hoping for that one. Neither have we had a Stonewall movement that is a big uprising against attempted repression that changed everything. Uh, people have been waiting for our Stonewall movement, and it hasn't happened, at least not yet. I mean, there have been a lot of cases of people who have had uh, bad experiences in family court with prejudiced judges uh, losing custody of their kids because the kids' grandparents uh, said, uh, 
these immoral uh, children of ours are, uh, are bringing up our grandkids uh, badly. Less of that now than there used to be. And there have been, uh, there have been people who, who get fired um, when it's discovered um, that they're in a poly relationship. Oh, we can't have that representing our company. Things like this. But no big stonewall moment. And boy, we've got the lawyers, we got the the, the troops, we got the, <laughs> We're ready. Uh, uh, the demonstrators uh, um, lined up and ready to go and bring it on, but uh, it hasn't happened. Yeah, we we actually watched Professor Marston and the Wonder Woman. We had a partner bring it over. We, we talked about that actually on the podcast. I think back in like episode thirty-two, and uh, it was it was you know it was really interesting because like. At, at 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 one in one way you're kind of sitting there going oh my god you're doing this all wrong but in the other way it was like just kind of a really adorable and really like serious look at at a poly relationship in the media like that was actually really impressive yeah and unfortunately i feel like the fans it created was people who were already poly <laughs> I feel like in the poly community, it was like, oh, this this movie, it's great, it's great, it's great. But as far as like the non-poly community, it was kind of like, what movie? Yeah. Uh, it, it never really found its audience, I think. It was hoping for the audience of Wonder Woman fans, I'm sure. But the posters for the movie made it look so <laughs> macho. Professor Marston, he looked sort of like, almost like a James Bond with these scantily clad women on either side of him. Uh, and that was going to be a turnoff to the very feminist uh, uh, Wonder Woman uh, fandom. And I hope that that, uh, that movie's non-success uh, hasn't killed the uh, the subject matter, but uh, it's showing up more on television now, for instance. One, one thing that we, we did back during the Fifty Shades time is we actually did, we did a lot of media stuff. And by we, I mostly mean Cassie. Um, we, had, we had initially one of those unfortunate, not wanting media things where media explodes that happened where, you know, like those situations where you're like up till midnight taking calls from reporters with like the yeah. National Coalition for Sexual Freedom on the other line trying to talk you through <laughs> it. But after that, we actually did uh, a significant amount of media stuff. And, you know, it it, it was surprisingly tricky. And we, we got quite a bit of uh, training and, and coaching courtesy of of some activist groups. I'm curious, you know, in your time of kind of watching the progress of poly through the media, what are some of the kind of common mistakes that you've seen poly people make when dealing with the media? Well, television is certainly the hardest medium to do well. Common mistakes would be not having your talking points, your key points lined up and rehearsed and at the tip of your tongue ready to go as soon as you can turn the conversation that way. Uh, not just shutting up when you don't have anything good to say because they're not going to run dead air. They're, they're going to cut that out. And, uh, or if you, uh, if you start to bumble um, something and say something you, you shouldn't or something that will sound bad when taken out of context, the thing to do is immediately say, oh, no, I didn't mean to say that. That came out wrong. What I meant to say was, and so on. So if they use the bad thing that you, out of context, you've got proof that you said, oh, I didn't mean that. And they would be liable for uh, putting you on saying something that you said, no, that was false. I didn't mean that. 
because if you've got a somewhat hostile, you, well, for one thing, you cannot win against hostile TV. Radio is really <laughs> nice. If you can go on a, a conservative talk show with a, uh, with a hostile host and, um, because it's kind of an equal format. It's you and he, and them talking back and forth, having a conversation and the, and the, uh, the listeners. If you don't get rattled and you're really good, pretty reasonably good with your voice, you can do very well against a, a somewhat challenging, uh, interviewer on radio. But on TV, no, because the, the video editor is paid by the, uh, the, the host and the, and the show, not by you. I'm told. For instance, that uh, when somebody in like uh, oh a TV star or a politician is going to go on what they know is a uh, uh, a, a hostile venue, they bring their own lighting people, and they uh, the the show the station might say, oh no, we got our own lighting techs, we'll set up the no, I bring my lighting people, because you don't realize this when you watch TV, but. Subtle changes in lighting that professionals know how to do can make you a good guy or a bad guy before you open your mouth. Uh, they can show, they can make, uh, determine how you're perceived. This is the sort of thing that uh, people who've never done media before are kind of babes in the woods if they go up against. That is a, is a problem. Being not, not being fully prepared, not having your t- good talking points ready to go to make the points that you want to make. And accidentally saying things that will sound bad if, if clipped and spliced out of context, you never want to do that. Your body language and your facial expressions say much more about you than your words on television. If, if somebody wants to do this, uh, a good resource is Robin Trask, who is the director of Loving More, the nonprofit organization. They put on uh, uh, two of the big poly conferences uh, every year in Philadelphia and uh, usually in Denver out west. She's just go to um, just search on Loving More uh, on the website. There's a phone number. She uh, you, you can just call her and she can give you coaching over the phone of how to do media. And if you're good at it, she's trying to build a database of people who are good media spokespeople for us because uh, Loving More gets requests from media. We want to interview somebody. Who have you got? And well, this is, if you, there's a, there's a future for you as a poly spokesperson in the media. (laughs) If you want to do this, the demand for them outstrips the supply. Yeah. So I actually, you know, as far as some of the things that you said was, you know, definitely talk to somebody first, you know, like we, we talked a lot with the NCSF because, you know, they had someone who could could talk about it. Oh yes. They're another great resource uh, for people to, uh, who are going to do media, uh, to go to. Yes. I can't recommend the NCSF highly enough. Yeah. Leah Fleming, Susan Wright, Leah Fleming, well, she's passed away now, but Susan Wright, is amazing and and I mean you know we it's it's funny like you're talking about hostile like we had some interviews where Cassie had a handler standing in the background yeah <laughs> yeah oh another another point is uh, be prepared to walk away Robin and Jesus her uh, primary partner uh, of Robin uh, of Loving More once were flown out to flown from Colorado where they lived to New York City um, to be on a show which sounded pretty good. It was going to be on uh, uh, people in alternative relationships and uh, alternative lifestyles uh, who are raising kids. And they had kids. So, yeah, 
when they got there, they found out for the first time that the title was going to be X-rated families. <laughs> and that the uh, people that they were on with, there was, uh, they were going to be um, uh, sex workers with kids and, uh, well, nothing against sex workers in principle, but this was not how they wanted to be associated. And basically, they felt that they were being ambushed. So they looked at each other, and as they were about to start uh, filming the show before a live audience, um, they decided they would just get up, and they walked out the back door behind the stage, out in the hall, took the elevator down to the street in a cab to the airport and flew back to Colorado and never looked back. And uh, we are proud of that to this day. You've got to be prepared to they walk should away. Be. That's uh that gives you a negotiating position. Uh, for instance, you can ask, um, well, certainly for print, you can ask, I want to verify my quotes dealing with a newspaper or magazine. Certainly, if you can do an interview in writing by email, that is wonderful because then you've both got a written record of exactly what you said. Uh, so if you're uh, quoted badly or out of context or twisted to make it look like you're saying something that you didn't, you've got a record there and you can complain to the, uh, um, to the, to the newspaper, maybe even bring a lawyer in on it. There, there's nothing that scares a newspaper more uh, than threat of, uh, of, uh, of libel. Um, so that's that's one thing you can ask for is being able to at least uh, have a fact check about the parts that have to do with you. It, once you've got some negotiating part power uh, and they know they're not dealing with a babe in the woods, uh, you can get your way a lot better. Absolutely. And I think there's other things just to keep in mind that media people aren't your friend. Like they can be friendly and they can be nice, but their job isn't to protect you. Their 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 job is is to be entertaining. And it's no, it's not and frankly it shouldn't be. Uh their job they they are doing their job for their purpose. I'm I'm not talking about the real uh nasty outlets that are just plain morally repugnant. But uh, good journalists are supposed to be challenging, are supposed to find your weak points, because that's where the interesting facts actually come out. How is your relationship really working? And if, well, if they could get some uh, body, some uncomfortable body language and glances back and forth between you, you know that's they're supposed to do that that is that is their job and it shouldn't be held against them you should be prepared for that though and you should also know going in i mean if you if you are going to walk into a hostile situation just walk away we don't need uh publicity so badly as we did 20 years ago uh that even uh, uh a bad show is better than nothing uh those days are gone <laughs> so yes yeah, scout out have they done have they treated similar subjects? How have they done that? Go back, watch the old episodes of how they treated uh, things that are in some way similar. Was it respectful or was it disrespectful? What's the agenda of the um, the, the company that's that's behind it or the the, uh, the host of the show? Who are their Who are their audience? You want to look like if you're again this we're talking about TV. You want to look like the audience, the people who watch that show. You want to look a little bit smarter and spiffier and, and what all, but you, you don't want to be really different from them. You want to be somebody that they can look at on the screen and identify with. 
tips like this that um, professionals go to seminars that pay a lot of money to learn these sort of tips mm-hmm. and uh, talk to NCSF or, or Loving More uh, and uh, you can get them for free. Yeah, like for us, one of the, the big things was it's all about who you're talking to, who is your audience, right? Like if your audience is an alternative rock station, right? Because we've we've done interviews on rock stations, that's going to be a very different crowd than if you're in front of a bunch of housewives who are just, you know, just touching the subject. So there's a lot with that. And like for us, we did things like, you know, we had an uh, invitation to uh, be on like a TV show at one point, and we actually had them send us all of their previous episodes. So that way we could review it and see Wonderful. how was this treated and how were the people who were on these shows depicted? Was it with like an open mind and open heart or was there some underhanded BS underneath that was that had, you know, some kind of motive? And, um, you know, just the little things like that. Yeah, I think the main, really, I think the, the, the main rule of thumb, and this is, you know, especially back when we were doing this regularly, what we kind of tried to stress to people, which is you, you can't, you know, you're dealing with professionals. If you want to do the stuff you want to talk to me, that's great. But you you can't walk in there not knowing what you're doing unprepared. Like you have to talk, talk to the NCSF, talk to you know, like you were saying, loving more, but have some kind of training before you step in there. Yeah. If nothing else, realize that uh, very likely whatever you say is going to be, you're going to be cut down to about 30 seconds, maybe less if you're, um, or at most, if you're on a good daytime talk show, you might get five minutes, even if they record 40 minutes. So you want to make sure that there's a really good five minutes of stuff in there. You want to have your talking points ready to go, well rehearsed, snappy, one or two sentences. Those are the things that uh, they will spot as, aha, this is something we want to use, as opposed to just rambling around about nothing in particular, um, which they're not going to use. If you don't have those good talking points already set up, you'll find, you may find out that the the, what they had you saying uh, for 30 seconds uh, total uh, here and there in the local evening news show uh, was really not what you wanted to get across at all. Uh, it's your job to put across your message. I mean, watch how politicians do it. They, they, they take professional training in how to do this. You answer the question that you wish had been asked, not the question <laughs> mm-hmm. that was asked. Yep, and uh, which, is, which is fine because they're going to cut the question out anyways. Yeah. Right. So right. they're, right. they're going to show the question. Very likely. Yeah. And every point that you make needs to stand alone on its own. Yes. And don't say <laughs> anything that will not stand well on its own. So, you know, what, what do you think kind of the, you know, obviously we, we've talked a lot about how far kind of polyamory has come in terms of being recognized and, and accepted by the general public, what do you kind of think are the next steps in terms of acceptance for the poly community? Like, where do you see stuff going over the next couple of years? I think uh, gradual, wider spread and understanding of alternative relationships and wider acceptance of alternative relationships uh, in general. And um, poly relationships are just one example of that. 
Do you think, do you, do you still think that we're going to have like a 50 shades moment or do you think that, uh, it, it's kind of, uh, you know, I, I kind of have this thought when you were saying earlier that, you know, that, um, people just really didn't get the kind of, they couldn't get the disgust and they couldn't drum up the moral panic. And I really wonder if, because that's really at a base, even monogamous people understand being attracted to other people and and they see the the you know incidents of cheating even in supposedly monogamous relationships like i wonder if it's hard to drum up a panic just because it's there's so little actual monogamy even in monogamous relationships well that can cut both ways a couple in a marriage by and large they're not scared uh that the um the uh, their partner is going to suddenly announce, I've decided I'm going to be gay. I'm leaving you behind. Goodbye. What they really are um, worried about is the partner saying, finding another person uh, of that they fall in love with and say, I've fallen in love with Susie. I'm, get, I'm asking for a divorce. Goodbye. That's what scares people. The way gays didn't scare people. It strikes close to home. Uh, on the other hand, what we're saying is if there is open communication about lots of these things, maybe it won't come to that kind of a crisis. Uh, so it, that can cut both ways. That on the one hand, it, it's it's dangerous because it's close to home, but it's also, as you said, maybe kind of cultural and uh, or it's understood. Yeah, it's going to be it's going to be really interesting to see where that where where it all goes in the next few years. And who knows, maybe somebody is going to invent the new form of poly that is the utopian commune that actually succeeds, works, and lots of people want to do it and will change the world. We don't know what's going to be coming down the pike uh, in times to come. Well, I, I have the goal of uh, starting like a small intentional community. So maybe uh, maybe we'll see that. Uh, Don't do it out in the country. Starting part. <laughs> uh, I have a, a friend, Michael Rios, who runs Network for a New Culture East. And he's very involved with the intentional communities movement, has been for many years, uh, and has written for uh, IC Magazine. And at the uh, annual Intentional Communities Conference at Twin Oaks in Virginia uh, last year or the year before, he uh, said, you know, if the right wing wanted to come up with a diabolical scheme to remove leftist activists from society and make them impotent and incapable, they would invent the rural commune where people go and become detached from the rest of the world and quickly descend into grinding poverty if they try to disconnect from the money economy because, uh, well, rural communes uh, by run by people who think they're going to grow their own food, well, this doesn't work. So, yeah, if you're setting up an intentional community, do it in a heavily populated area. Uh, do it where people can earn a living. Um, yeah, the reasons uh, that people uh, uh, think, oh boy, we're going to, there's, uh, my grandfather has this farm that uh, the family has inherited and they don't know what to do with it. And it's, I can buy it for a song. Nobody, it's so cheap to buy land way out there. The reason the land is cheap is nobody wants to live there. So if you get people <laughs> to the commune, they're going to be losers who can't make it anywhere else in the world. 
Uh, and um, there, and the reason people don't want to live there is there's no there are no jobs, no way to make money. So anyway, yeah. So end of rant. Uh, but before I end this rant, however, I'm going to quote Stuart Brand, the editor of the Whole Earth Catalog back in the 70s. This was the the peak of the back to the land movement uh, of the the hippies and the counterculture. Stuart Brand said. Your grandfather lived on a farm, and he earned his living by the sweat of his brow, under the sun and out in nature, and he called no man his boss. And just as soon as your grandfather could when he was growing up, he lit out from the farm to take a very dangerous factory <laughs> job in the city. Maybe your grandfather knew something about farming that you don't. Uh, I, I I have to tell you, I... Uh... That is not what we yeah, have. Yeah, I cannot do the commune thing. No. I, uh, no, I just, I just want to live in a place with people I actually like. Yeah. Um. I, I, I do, I do though. I, I wanna, I wanna make a topic jump here. I don't know if Cassie had talked to you about this. So we, you know, we, we do do Q and A questions. We have people who send something in, and somebody had sent something in that fortuitously right before we, we, we scheduled you for. The podcast and the last Q&A we did, we actually set this question aside because we wanted to get your input. Okay, now I'm curious. Yes. So um, this question is from John. He's 41 and he's from Hawaii. And he says, so let me read this and I'll say the backstory and we'll hop in to why we, why we wanted to talk to you. He says, do you two have any thoughts on Dan Savage's response if polyamory is an orientation? He basically said it's something you do rather than something you are. I think this is BS. What about y'all? So we had a lot of thoughts on this, but <laughs> in researching it, we found out that one of the uh, most popular posts on this topic, you actually wrote back in 2012. So we're kind of dragging up history here a little bit. Um but we thought this would be a great question to address while we had you on the podcast. Okay. Well, um, what I think I said then, I think, because I think <laughs> I, my opinion is the same, is that for some people it is and for some it isn't. Uh, some people say, oh, my God, I discovered this thing. Finally, I know what I am. I know what was wrong with me. There's nothing wrong with me at all. I'm polyamorous. Uh, I can do this without being a sneaky, awful cheat who feels miserable about themselves. I, I've discovered who I am. Okay, that's an, ori that's an innate orientation, I think. There's uh, somebody who feels that way can make that claim and, uh, and nobody can gainsay it. On the other hand, other people such as me, chose this as a deliberate philosophical choice. And uh, I've described myself as a polymono switch. I can live happily either way, and I have lived happily either way for long stretches of my life. I'm 67 years old at this point, so I've been through a lot. So for me, it is a choice rather than an orientation. Different things, it, different, it's it, different things for different people. Yeah, it's it's an interesting. I mean, it's an interesting topic because I mean, you know, I I you get down to this whole thing of what is orientation, and if you view orientation, I mean, you know, as who you are, I I think that the argument that I I just I honestly I find I find this point of view by Dan Savage that something that like non-monogamy that's so obviously hardwired into our genes wouldn't 
be an orientation. Like I just, I, I find that that's a really odd, like you don't even, you don't even get to have the nature versus nurture question to a certain extent with. Well, a big difference. First <laughs> of all, I think a lot of people really are more monogamous than otherwise. We talk about the high rates of cheating in marriage. Uh, what doesn't get mentioned uh, is that uh, even if it's 30 or 40 percent over a lifetime, that means it's 60 percent to 70 percent over a lifetime of married couples who don't cheat. There is the uh, even I see this even in the poly world as time goes on, as people get older, um, they tend to form anchor relationships. Uh, maybe it's an actual marriage, maybe it's not, but these are the people you, ex uh, you expect to grow old with. So I see pair bonding happening in as people get older uh, into late middle age and older age. That happens in the poly world, and it's uh, uh, certainly an open pair bond. But there is a uh, 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 a pairing up aspect to human nature as well. Now, genetically, you can certainly see the reasons for this. Uh, you you don't want to have inbreeding in a population. Uh, so you want to have outbreeding. So this means you want to be looking for uh, new and different, um, well, places uh, to uh, to swap genes with. Um, <laughs> Uh, in social terms, however, there's a great deal to, uh, to be said for having a, a life partner, to being a team. And uh, this is, you see this in lots of different uh, human cultures throughout history, uh, that uh, usually it's the man uh, who can have relationships on the side, and this is just understood, but there's the official relationship, which is the, quote, real one. And we're getting, we're, what we're saying is that whatever to whatever degree you do or don't follow that model uh, or want to follow that model, that's up to you to decide, and you can do it in an ethical and open manner, especially if you bring this up right at the early stages of a relationship so you don't uh, become uh, closely interlinked with somebody who's just plain incompatible on, a th on, an, on an important thing like this. What so, Cassie? I'm I'm because we had we'd kind of halted our conversation on this to get Alan on here. I'm as somebody who identifies as LGBT. Well, I guess you can't identify as all those things, but who identifies very strongly as by as with having an orientation that's bisexual, leaning more towards lesbian. How do you view the whole orientation versus? Uh... So I, I I have the first time I came across that whole conversation, I actually got very angry with Dan Savage. <laughs> um, but my, my issues come down after the first initial, like, how dare you tell me what my orientation is? I think for some folks, it is an orientation. I think that it is definitely, this is a part of who I am. And I feel like we get down to this, well, what are you versus what do you choose to be versus well, there's something that's genetic versus not genetic. And I feel like we try to hammer things down to the ridiculous. And who cares? Who cares, first of all. So who cares? But secondly, when we deny something as not being an orientation, we lose a lot of the protections that come along with being a certain like minority. Like when we started looking at, you know, the LGBT community as not something that was just something you chose to do because you felt like it, 
but these are people, these are these, this is your orientation and who you have to be. Then we started being able to open up the conversations around, well, we need to have protections for these kind of people. We need to have protections because this is something that they're not choosing, but is who they are. And I think that when we start talking about polyamory as being just a choice or just preference, we lose the argument for wanting to battle for some of those rights and freedoms to have with our partners. And for, and for some people, it really is uh, uh, an orientation. That's a double-edged sword. The prototype of this argument is uh, black people and other people of color don't have a choice of how they were born. Uh, so, quote, it's not their fault, it, you, you could say, so they shouldn't be penalized for this. And um, the, uh, the gay movement um, uh, made a lot of this argument, we were born this way. Uh, and uh, this is certainly much more uh, for, uh, true for gays. This really is uh, sexual orientation, really is an orientation. I'm straight, and I couldn't become gay if I wanted to. It's, it would be like, for some people, chewing, ha eating a wonderful gourmet meal. For me, eating that same thing would be like chewing cardboard. It just doesn't work for me. So that's an orientation. Uh, and in fact, there was a, a lawyer, a, a woman named Ann Tweedy, who I think uh, in 2012 wrote a rather lengthy uh, academic paper for some law journal about could polyamory be classified as an orientation for legal purposes to get under the protection that the law gives uh, for orientations, innate things that you're born with. And she basically made the point that, um, made the case that, yes, there, there's a case to be made here, and it could be uh, legally useful, uh, although it might be difficult because it's not uh, universally applicable. It's applicable to some people, but not everybody. And others of us, like me, think, well, free people get to choose who we are. Uh, we don't. It's not like we're born with an unfortunate condition uh, that society has to have sympathy for uh, uh, with us for because of this thing like uh, some disease we're carrying. No, we're free people and get to choose what we do. Yeah, it's an interesting, I, I mean, it is an interesting line. And I, I do think there's, there's a certain extent to, you know, what does it really matter? I mean, if, if, if you're choosing it versus, you know, and I, and I, I doubt, I doubt that for any of us, this is really, you know, a hundred percent all biology or a hundred percent all like social choice. I think that, you know, that there's probably different levels of that for all of us, some some much more so one way than the others. I found that argument of it's a choice to be really interesting coming from a gay man who until very recently, the argument would have been, well, you know, you just you're just choosing to be gay, just stop. Um, so I, I thought that was a really interesting argument. You know, I wonder if this is uh a case of um, pulling up the drawbridge once you're safely inside the castle, so the others can come in after. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. So we'll we'll link we'll link to your article from 2012 in the show notes at atouchofflavor.com. Well, let's see. Uh, once again, uh, the website is polyamory in the news, polyinthemedia.blogspot.com. Oh, and also another site that I run is Alan's List of Polyamory Events. This was another case where I saw there was a, a miss, there was an empty hole in the movement that needed to be filled. It's one place where you could go for 
listing of all the poly conventions, campouts, gatherings, uh, the Burning Man community, the Burning Man camp, um, all of the uh, large regional and national and international poly events in one place. And at this point, there are about two dozen of them in uh, for the next uh, for the coming year. And it used to be just a handful. So that's Alan's list of polyamory events. And the next big one coming up is Beyond the Love in Columbus, Ohio, uh, next month. Yeah, well, and we'll link to all, all these sites that you mentioned, all your stuff. We'll link to in the show notes as well so people can find you and, uh, and go right to all of the wonderful stuff that you're running. So before we let you go, are you ready to do our speed round? Yes, go. All right. So what is something you're not very good at? Getting on task rapidly in, instead of procrastinating. Best piece of relationship advice you've ever received? Okay, I'm going to give you one that I came up with myself. With apologies to the fabulous furry freak brothers of underground comic days, when it comes to relationships, a sense of humor will get you through times of no sanity better than sanity will get you through times of no humor. Good. What are three things you couldn't live without? Food, air, and water. Uh, no, uh... Being surrounded by love, being surrounded by intellectual, stimulating community, and dark night sky. I love astronomy. So what turns you on? Sexually? Yeah. Well, I'm, uh, I'm pathetically vanilla to be on this show, I have to admit. <laughs> um, you know, I think I'm going to take a pass on that one. Okay. So... Secret. Tell me something that's true that almost nobody agrees with you on. When conservatives have, the me have, have a meme that liberals are stupid, especially when it comes to strategy and tactics in politics, they're often right. Liberals have terrible strategy and tactics, whereas conservatives have military strategy and tactics. And I think this has a whole lot to do with why they have won so much, even though their positions are unpopular. So when I speak to liberal audiences or tell people, that's unpopular. Okay. So what is your biggest fear? Biggest fear? I fear for the republic. I fear that the United States of America is uh, is going down the tubes uh, in a way that it uh, that we weren't expecting. Uh, and then longer term, I fear uh, that uh, catastrophic uh, global uh, systems collapse due to uh, ecological resource overshoot and global warming, which I won't live long enough to see, but uh, my grandkids will. A book you would recommend for our listeners? More Than Two and Eight Things I Wish I'd Known About Polyamory. What's the most adventurous thing you've ever done? Ooh, oh my. Nearly dying, ice climbing on a cliff with improper equipment in the middle of the winter over a roaring river. Okay. <laughs> Not recommended for our listeners. Not Don't, <laughs> Don't be stupid. <laughs> Who is your movie star or TV crush? Neither movies nor TV. Well, yeah, maybe TV. Carl Sagan. I actually right. had him for a professor in college before he was famous, and I got a crush on him that, that lasted the rest of my life. All right. So what's something you're working on right now that you'd like our listeners to know about? Oh, the Polyamory Coalition. 
uh, which has just filed its incorporation papers and is going to be uh, getting its 501c3 nonprofit educational uh, status, which is uh, already a coalition group of, at this point, about 20 uh, poly organizations, projects, podcasts, uh, everything from NCSF and Loving More uh, down to particular podcasts. The idea is to we're going to be we're putting together a uh, really definitive good website for newbies that is being done by volunteers who create websites for nonprofits. Uh, this is what their company does for a living, but they're doing this for free. The idea is to drive this high in Google rankings so that when somebody brand new to the subject puts the word into uh, Google or Bing, they're not going to get the kind of random mess of stuff that they get now. They're going to be getting something authoritative that has the backing of lots of organizations and also can help tie organizations together to do bigger things than any one uh, group can do. I mean, you look at a look at any of the big political organizations that are doing stuff now. The sidebar on the side of their webpage is all of the members of this coalition. I mean, the Women's March had something like 200 organizations listed as members of this coalition. We want to do that. That's what that's the sign of a growing movement when they form a coalition group. So. I'm hopeful that uh, this will get more uh, activism and more bigger projects uh, uh, going than uh, have been up to now. All right. And uh, the last question is where to find you, but you kind of already answered that. So we'll link to your uh, your sites, your list of poly events and your, uh, you know, the poly and the media page and everything like that in the show notes. Wonderful. So thank you for coming on. Oh, thanks for having me. Oh, boy. <laughs> it was awesome. Thanks for listening to the Touch of Flavor podcast, where we're building relationships outside of the box. Got a question about kink, power exchange, or open relationships that you've been holding on to for years? This is the place to ask it. Submit your question at atouchofflavor.com slash ask, or leave us a voicemail at 833-ASK-TOF1. 